Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. We are a learning community for people at a career crossroads, ready to rejoin their soul and their role. We have long-form conversations about self-awareness, relationships, tapping into your inner genius, and building sustainable habits. We are led by our questions. We're curious. We're storytellers. And the more we learn, the better we get. And there are people all around us who have done the work. We think they have a lot to say about how we can discern and activate our own purpose. I'm Shelley Prevost. I'm an educational psychologist and the founder of Big Self. And I'm Chad Prevost. I'm a media specialist. I write, research, and produce content across industries. To learn more about how to join the tribe, go to ShellyPrevost.com slash Big Self Society. Let's get started. Joining us today on the Big Self Podcast is my friend, Dr. Matt McClanahan. Matt is an osteopathic physician who is board certified in both neuromusculoskeletal, am I saying that Easy right? for you to medicine say. Medicine yeah, right. and family medicine. <laughs> and prior to that, he also got his master's degree in exercise physiology. So well-educated uh, and to say the least, in this topic, from early in his training, a focus uh, he focused on the cohesion of body, mind, and spirit, uh, which I can get behind. And it was it was formed due to his experiences professionally and personally with manual and lifestyle medicine, mindfulness training, sustainable and interracial communities, contemplative spirituality, and lots of other factors. Yeah, lots of stuff for us to learn from in this conversation. Um, We've been really looking forward to it. In uh, in September of 2014, Matt and his wife moved to Chattanooga, where he began a practice in integrative primary care. However, through many challenges and even failures helping patients in the usual disease-focused medical machine, he began learning the value in considering the nervous and psychological systems in treating almost any persistent symptom and energizing a person's innate self-healing capacity. Matt's emphasis is on accurate diagnosis and facilitating knowledge of what is happening in a person and why it has persisted. Matt, welcome to the show. Yay! Yeah, We're you. glad to have you here. here. Well, it is great to have you here in uh, in the in the actual literal house. Um, first, so tell us a little bit about yourself. You attended Des Moines University in Iowa. Are you native to the area? And what, what's fun? It's fun to do in Des Moines. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I'm a Midwestern <laughs> kid uh, from the beginning. Kind of born in St. Louis, and then uh, moved to Kansas City halfway through my childhood, and my parents still live there. And so um, I went to University of Missouri. So just kind of bopping all around uh, various states there. I think they consider Michigan the Midwest, and that's where I did my uh, residency and fellowship. And then so, yeah, it was four years before that in Des Moines. And um, I loved my time in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. It was really a I've surprise. heard it's a cool place. Yeah, it's yeah. up and coming. It's, um, yeah, it's bigger than, than Chattanooga but, uh, mm-hmm. and just a couple steps ahead. But um I don't know. Yeah, they've got uh, a local kind of independent food culture there thing that is, oh. it's kind of really interesting. Uh, that was the first time, I think, in my whatever consciousness where uh, kind of the farm to table and like local mm-hmm. food movement uh, kind of hit home for me and a group of uh, people actually affiliated with like a spiritual community that I was with there. Um, really, we're looking at applications of our spirituality through uh, how do we steward our habits and, and preferences and choices and things. And mm. so that just came into my awareness and man, the 
Iowa has a connectedness to the people there mm. um, that is uh, I haven't experienced anywhere else in the country. Wow, so, surprising kind of answer. Fun, yeah. I would love for you to share a little bit about how you got into the work that you're doing. I think we've talked before bits and pieces about what led you to this work. Uh, what's what's where's the passion around this, and what compelled you to really pursue neuro musculoskeletal medicine and family medicine. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, in medical school and then beyond, I kind of realized I didn't, there wasn't anything I didn't like except the idea of a surgical residency. And so Uh, (laughs) early on, you kind of make the decision between medicine and surgery and there's all the subspecialties in each one of those. Um, and yeah, I, I liked everything. I even liked procedural work and surgeries, but, uh, my second rotation in medical school, third year of medical school was a surgery, general surgery rotation. And it just was like, not you. Yeah. It was, it was the, no one was happy there. Um, and nor was I, and, uh, it just seemed like too much pressure for me. Uh, and I liked everything else. And, uh, you know, you intend to go into internal medicine or family medicine, and I still like okay. to deliver babies and pediatrics. And so that's more family medicine than, than an internist would do. And, um, so that was that part of it. And as an osteopathic physician, uh, all DOs, uh, you know, we're in every specialty and there's been a DO surgeon general before every DO is, uh, trained in, uh, manual medicine, uh, like, uh, manipulation, uh, diagnosis and treatment with the hands. Uh, and so that kind of looks like chiropractic medicine to a lot of people. And there's a uh, similar origins to both. And maybe, maybe osteopathic is a little bit earlier. I'm not sure. They're very uh, close and actually both in kind of middle Missouri and Iowa, but, um, yeah, uh, I loved that part of it, and uh, I was always kind of more of a kinetic mm-hmm. hands kid, on. Yeah. And my mom would give me back rubs, and I loved them, and would you know buy me massages for my birthday or something. And um, so I, I liked that work, and then to be able to apply it actually very uh, meticulously and with some of the evidence, and in a very systematic way uh, within medicine, and as an as an adjunct, but also as a way to help the paradigm of what a whole person is, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, you know, not just, uh, results of a lab test or not just the, uh, what, a what an X-ray or MRI shows and, um, you know, and not just a math problem or a, uh, sort of a car mechanic thing to be solved. Like, you know, this thing's rattling and, uh, you go in and get the thing fixed and that's true for certain things. And that's actually works well in the surgical model, but when it comes to changing behaviors and, uh, and stuckness, uh, which is yeah. what a lot of people see, especially in the primary care world, mm-hmm. um, these ongoing things. Kind of chronic. It, it doesn't work too well illness, yeah. uh, to look at somebody like a math problem. Well, yeah. well, and, yeah. and that that brings up in 2018, you started a group practice called the Insight Pain Institute, and you guys have some kind of philosophies and approaches. Do you want to, you want to tell us about, um, about your practice? Yeah. So the center for insight medicine is, is my medical practice. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, a very similar kind of, uh, side, I don't know, complement to that is something called the insight pain Institute. Okay. And I formed that with a local physical therapist, Jason Terrian and a local psychotherapist, uh, Tyler Orr. Um, and the three of us just in numerous conversations going back to geez, late 2015, early 2016, uh, about pain neuroscience and about, uh, in, in some ways, yeah, like non-dual uh, thinking um, and what it means to, to help people actually recover and uh, from the inside out more than what we can do to them to make them feel better. Um, mm-hmm. That was where this started and it started with some programming at the Center for Mindful Living, a, a program we called Pain Matters 
which we would uh, did some work with professionals and then some with uh, mainly with uh, public teaching them like, how does, how does pain work? Why does it persist in some people and not others? And so that became that uh, right now, the insight pain Institute is, is main, mainly an educational arm of um, that is it's separate from my, my practice, but the sort of the insight connection is something that we, we all subscribe to. And uh, we're, we're doing our first major training down in Moultrie, Georgia in uh, March. So a couple months away and really working on the curriculum. Oh, for that's that. awesome. So, yeah. Okay. So what, how would you answer that question for people that ask you about chronic pain? Like why do some people seem to suffer with it more than others? If you have a, a distilled response yeah, to that. I don't, I'll distill it, you know, for the rest of the time on the podcast. Here. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, most of the time, unfortunately we have, probably the wrong diagnosis or the wrong understanding mm. the idea. And it, it's very, a very logical idea that pain comes from the body. Pain is when my back hurts, there's something wrong in the back or when I've scraped the skin off my elbow, my elbow hurts. And mm. that's really common. And, and it's very logical. And ever since childhood, that's how, uh, you know, cause and effect we've determined that's the, how our bodies work. Kind of that mechanical experience. approach. That exactly. Yeah. Yep. And uh, a thing I like to talk about in my, in some of my workshops or lectures is, you know, uh, maybe three guys, uh, older gentlemen come into the emergency room, each of them with a, a fatigue, a wet sounding cough, and they're short of breath. Um, and maybe you give them all oxygen, but uh, that's kind of sounds like pneumonia, right? <laughs> right. Maybe coronavirus, but um, no, you know, no. who knows? Just yeah. Um, so just it, too soon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but if you give them all antibiotics, that would maybe help one out of three because uh, heart failure presents exactly the same way and a COPD exacerbation pre presents exactly the same way. And those two need, you know, diuretics and maybe steroids and breathing treatments, mm -hmm. uh, respectively. Uh, and if you treat the... If you treat the person with a heart failure exacerbation with an antibiotic, you, you would risk, you know, delaying yeah. life-saving treatment. So they all present fairly similarly, okay. uh, but the treatment has to go to the diagnosis. And when we only think of pain as coming from the brain, uh, excuse me, as coming from the body, uh, yeah. then, right. then we don't yeah. understand that like uh, how pain works actually, uh, that all pain comes from the brain. Um, and uh, <laughs> we're, we're used to this mechanic model of quick fixes and uh, external sort of treatments to make a symptom go away rather than understanding like, why is it here? Uh, what led to it? And, and what do I need to do to really... Uh, get to the cause. Are you seeing more, um, as you, as you have clients that, you know, they come in with uh, often chronic pain. Are you, are you, is there a more of an openness to, yeah, there, there's more going, or is there still kind of the same general resistance of, Hey, I've got pain here. And if you could just kind of help me <laughs> address this, I, I really don't need the therapy or whatever. Yeah. 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 Do, yeah. Do you see a lot of, I mean, what, what, what's, what's trending? Well, I did see that when I was a primary care doctor, which, um, you know, it's hard to ever take that hat off. You just sort of see things in a little bit more complete situation and context. But um, I don't do primary care anymore. And that was a big piece of that that's frustrating. Uh, now I specialize in this and people who come to see me kind of know that uh, they're not going to get an opiate or a, um, just a quick referral to a, a PT for the umpteenth time or um, t some other thing or even manipulation. That's where it got tricky with uh, some of this manual stuff. I did a mm -hmm. whole extra year of a fellowship to, to specialize and refine my skills in um, manual medicine. And I, I use it less now because, mm. um, you know, when you're 
it's hard to, to do physical manipulation and actually treat the roots of uh, childhood trauma or stress or uh, patterns of emotional repression. Like this is that soft science stuff and it's really hard uh, in medicine and it, certainly when uh, insurance payments and uh, time pressures and all these things are there to actually connect with a human being to understand like, why was your nervous system sending out this danger signal to you called pain, right? Uh, there's, yeah. other, there's other ones like hunger and fatigue and uh, uh, even anger or dissatisfaction or something like that. These are all alarms that our brain creates to protect us and try to keep us uh, in, in a way that will meet our needs more effectively. Um, yet, and pain is that way all the time. And sometimes, a lot of times, especially in acute pain, the need is to protect the tissues of the body and mm. the structures. But um, <laughs> when, when all pain is viewed as just this structural dilemma or this bad body or uh, I'm wearing out and... Uh, things like uh, the the ideas that certain doctors and culture at large that uh, you know body weight is what causes pain or uh, scar tissue or uh, you're just getting old and you should mm -hmm. expect pain and uh, you'll you'll know when you need to come see me to get that joint replaced. Um, these are all sort of messages of fear, and so when people come to me with that uh, now in my situation, I'm able to sort of. Uh, pump the brakes a little bit on the only the structural piece. And most times people have already seen a number of therapists, uh, traditional or alternative, uh, and they're just frustrated. And that, that frustration, right? Pain is our teacher, right? It tells yeah. us something needs attention. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm counting on that when so, people show up. Yeah, like if we're unpacking your work a little bit, and let's say someone comes to see you, someone's listening to this podcast who may have pain, mm -hmm. uh, acute, chronic, you know, uh, back pain or uh, autoimmune pain, like how, tell, walk us through the process of how you help them unpack that. And it can be either from your practice perspective or from kind of the educational arm of what you're doing. But how do you help people move from body, embodied pain to the brain recognition yeah. of what they're experiencing? No, that's a great question. Um, and the first thing is, to explain pain a little bit is, is, mm -hmm. is helpful. And like I said, it's this, um, you know, in the same way that we don't have, uh, we don't have vision receptors, right? We have mm -hmm. rods and cones in the back of our retina that detect light and color. Uh, and the brain creates vision. Same thing for hearing, right? We have little hair cells and some fluid in our ears that, that detect vibration, you know, sound waves basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it, that message goes into the brain. The brain creates hearing and pitch and these things we recognize as people's voices and whatnot. Pain is interpreted through uh, input from the tissue. Um, and uh, that, and essentially that the brain has said, this is danger is outweighing safety mm -hmm. <laughs> in this situation. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, danger in the body uh, is a common thing for, for that kind of thing. So I start to unpack that and say, okay, is this we looking at acute pain? Are we looking at tissue damage? And that's really the first mm. question for me. Like I said, with these, you know, okay. old guys cough, wet cough and shortness of breath. I mean, it's, they have the symptoms, they're real symptoms for sure. Um, but the idea is like, what is the diagnosis? Now you said, uh, there's things like fibromyalgia which on the one hand, which super, well, it's not overly common, but it's, it's, everybody knows somebody with fibromyalgia these days. Mm -hmm. Um, there's that. And then there's, uh, maybe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. Right. right, And those are a little bit different. We don't know the, what causes fibromyalgia. Um, there's all kinds of theories out there as to what it might be and inflamed inflammation. And we certainly see some changes in the neurochemicals of the brain, serotonin, dopamine, some other things, uh, substance P and some other CGRP or some other chemicals that uh, sometimes are a little higher in these people, but we don't know why it's high. Okay. And the treatments are not very effective. Mm -hmm. um, we don't 
anti-inflammatories don't work very well and opioids don't work very well and surgeries certainly don't work for fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. And we treat the nervous system with like anti-seizure medicines or antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines that help to kind of mute the nervous system irritability. And that's our, that's our approach to that thing. Whereas in an autoimmune condition, the immune system is eating up good tissue and mm -hmm. rheumatoid arthritis. It's, it's antibodies against the synovial linings of your joints. Um, and that causes active tissue damage. Yeah. So, so it's like real, really happening. Yeah. It's well, and that's tricky, right? It's really okay. happening. Like it's the damage is really happening, but are pain and tissue damage the same thing? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. And the answer is no. Yeah. Right. There's phantom limb pain. There's, yeah. there's times in survival situations, uh, military altercations where people have had shrapnel in them or something and they don't feel pain despite the structural damage. Um, there's all kinds of uh, things. People have, you know, stress-related tension headaches. I get used to get those. Um, mm -hmm. And is that is that real pain? Well, of course it's real pain. It uh, doesn't mean it's in my mind. And that's the first thing that is really clear is, one, yeah, understanding the diagnosis, but two, because because pain is produced by the brain doesn't mean it's like imagined or fake or That's, any less real. That was my yeah. next question. Like what, just where, what is the connection there? Do, do you find that sometimes there is a way through just by a different, maybe mindset shift? Uh, typically, but it, it requires a lot of knowledge. I mean, uh, mindset's mm -hmm. a really interesting thing. Um, when your mindset is is fixed in this idea that uh, pain comes from a bad body, that you're fragile and you're getting older every single second, and you can you should expect pain, that our cores are weak, that there's, I mean, there are toxins in the environment and certain things, but like that, that we're at the mercy of weather fronts and mm. uh, all the glutens of the world mm -hmm. uh, that are trying to get us. Like mm -hmm. that's a really terrifying kind of way to go through life. Uh, you're just sort of always on guard internally. Um, yeah. And, I'm not saying that people don't need to avoid gluten. And certainly if you have celiac disease, again, an autoimmune condition to, you know, in, initiated by the wheat protein, but, um, that's a separate issue that like, there's a kind of a cultural zeitgeist and people making lots of money on some of these things. Uh, and that doesn't make the nervous system feel safer on a, on a conscious or an unconscious level. It tends to wind up this, uh, autonomic fight or flight or freeze response, uh, that over time it can just sort of be like the the air we breathe, it, mm. is, it is one of fragility, it is one of um, uh, sort of wishful thinking, hoping, hoping weather fronts and hoping, uh, hoping pain stays away without like actually mm -hmm. understanding where it's coming from or why it's there or uh, what to do about it. So you and I have talked previously about these conditions and how they are exacerbated by stress mm -hmm. and how that, you know, the stress can be the impetus of, of a lot of these conditions, not just exacerbating mm -hmm. it. So I wanted you to talk, because I'm imagining people out there listening who may not necessarily have chronic pain or um, some kind of debilitating dis-ease, but they certainly aren't living their full self, mm -hmm. not feeling, you know, vitality, maybe not sleeping super great, um, and enduring a lot of stress. Um, you made this great distinction between stress and stressors, mm -hmm. which I really loved. And I, I wanted you to talk about that, but how does stress play into the work you're doing and what are you seeing in terms of, of the conditions you're treating? Yeah, that's great. So uh, stress in general can be viewed as a supply and demand relationship. And it's all perceptual, which is kind of interesting, right? So my perceived supply is coming against this perceived demand, whether that's time or money or mm -hmm. relational yeah. capital or actual physical strength or something like that, um, hours in the day kind of thing. And um, yeah, so 
here's the thing though, like stress is, has to do with, uh, emotions and, uh, physical sensations and, and cognition, cognitive thoughts and thinking and things, but, uh, it's very subjective. The same thing that stresses yeah. me out might not stress you out at all. I don't have children and you've raised a few and, uh, just the normal kid stuff sort of, uh, I don't have that skill set and that experience yet you do. And so, um, but it's the same, it's the same amount of, I don't know, demand on us, yeah. but it's my perceived supply. Right. And so th- that's a, piece of that that is that is important but this distinction you made of stressors and stress like stress is the response to the stressors yeah, we call it the stress response you know sympathetic nervous system is part of this autonomic autonomous part of our unconscious that keeps our physiology in balance and is there to protect us like the purpose of stress in our bodies is to respond to the stressors to respond to the perceived need the perceived lack the perceived uh, threat to our uh, our supply Right, and to upregulate us to meet that demand. So we have a stressor in our life that we interpret as stress. Yeah, the supply and demand. The body's job is to pump the cortisol. And there's probably other hormones going on in that too. Dozens. Yeah, sure. That get us to activate, get us to meet the demand of whatever the stressor is. Um, and what we've talked about, you know, the the psychological conditions, the psychological stressors that we create for ourselves and then how that kind of overloads our body with so many stress hormones. Um, and then, and then the connection to some of these diseases. So like, how do you get people to really, um, identify that, you know, what, what is the, 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 uh, entry point into treatment when you're moving, into this holistic approach where it's not just the body, but you're helping people like, what are the, the stressors in your life? Like, how do you help them identify these psychological stressors so that they start making that, that link? Yeah. So, uh, the primary way to do that is pain. People don't, people listen to pain and we don't, we don't change when what we're doing is working. Um, yeah. and I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't change. You it. don't. That's right. If it wasn't uncomfortable enough, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. Going. Yeah. Keep going as is. That's a good thing. That's our body's way of saying, Hey, uh, our needs are being met. Uh, we feel contentment. We feel ease and joy and gratitude. If that's abundant in our lives, then, uh, those are sort of like the indicator lights. You know, I, we, TVA's got you know, dams and nuke plants all around here, and I'm sure they've got some you know, central command, mm-hmm. uh, th- panel with all the lights on it. And we've got green indicators and yellow and orange and red. And like when the greens and yellows are there, it's like, no, we're, we're pretty good. Let's keep on this way. Um, needs are being met and that kind of thing. And we start to see these increasingly, uh, orange and red lights come on. That, that's how we know something needs attention. And yet we hate those things. Yeah. We hate the They're pain so and inconvenient. anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> and we want them to go away so that we can keep Going. Well, yeah. okay. I, and I Plowing don't, through. I don't yeah. know if this is taking us away from how you help people address stress, but I was also wondering, you know, you've mentioned when chronic pain, we've, we've said, okay, it, it's not just made up. So when it's a real issue, when there is no easy cure through surgery or medicine, mm-hmm. you know, what is the best approach to helping patients still aspire to be their healthiest self I don't know if your approach is similar to just helping them handle stress or if it's a little different when they have kind of a chronic pain. Mm -hmm. So again, and this sounds like I'm just beating this dead horse. um, Beat it. We like beating dead horses here. (laughs) It's important to understand what is causing this pain. Okay. So back to diagnosis. All good medicine starts with the right diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if this is a structurally based, tissue-based pain, 
Um, for example, something like uh, uncontrolled rheumatoid arthritis. It's not People have gone off of their immune suppressants or steroids or whatever, which are not always the best things. Or there's other large sources of inflammation, a really uh, poor diet or no physical activity, uh, terrible sleep, these other things that, that lead actually to our body's own immune system being more irritable and reactive. Like, okay, you, we've got more tissue damage happening. That's a totally different approach to this kind of stress-mediated approach. Uh, or okay. looking at origins of stress, or uh, even at sometimes uh, some of these chronic pain conditions can be cured uh, by going back upstream to look at the sources of fear, to look at the sources of, of strain, look at the context of when did these symptoms begin. So pain is a protector, mm -hmm. right? It's, a, it's just, uh, it's an alarm. It's the orange and red alarms in the power plant or whatever. Uh, it's telling us something needs attention. Um, in the same way that maybe a stress eater, I've been guilty of that before. Um, uh, Me, I haven't at all, ever. Never, no. never, <laughs> ever, yeah. So that's actually a real perception of hunger or appetite in that situation, right? Mm. It's, not a, it's not a fake hunger, right? Um, but the idea is, uh, does it, is that stress eating, is that sense of hunger, is that actually a reflection of a need for calories? Mm. No, right. So mm -hmm. this is the same thing. Is, is hunger and a need for calories the same thing? No, it's not. Yeah. Just like pain and tissue damage are, ne are never the same thing. They often are correlated, just like hunger and need for calories are correlated. But if I'm stress eating, what I need in that moment is comfort. I need ease in some way. I need mm. a boundary. I need, mm. I need a break. Um, I need something, right? And, uh, but it's manifesting to my consciousness and just... You couldn't see me snap my fingers there. Um, <laughs> I can hear it. Yeah. Yep. It, it, man it manifests in my consciousness. as like, I could eat something. I should eat a little bit more. I should keep going or whatever and not stop yeah. when uh, the caloric need has been satisfied. So it's a comfort mechanism. Pain is actually works like that. It's not very comfortable in that kind of eating sort of way. But like uh, a lot of times, like the brain is activating this protective signal uh, when something else needs attention. And that's only in certain cases. And you have to really get to the root of this. It's like, is this a tissue damage problem? Is this a, uh, a nervous system like conditioned response or is it a little bit of both? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it can be both. People have had uh, surgeries or, uh, f I don't know, terrible, terrible uh, physical traumas to their body. And uh, maybe some things have, have repaired there. But, like, there is this kind of fear-based uh, amplification of it. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that, like, it takes some nuance to look at that rather than just say, oh, you've got a lot of pain. We need, to, we need a lot of pain suppression. Um, yeah, that's true, too. And, you know, maybe we want to focus on function and other things. But, like, is some of this amplification coming from inside of you? Uh, and how do we, how do we find that out and work with that? This is a hard question and you might laugh that I'm asking it. What is the percentage of the diagnosis related to psychology? Uh, 72.4. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I have no idea what that percentage but, is in my practice, uh, in my experience. Okay. So okay. my practice now is really dealing almost exclusively with that when people are sort of fed up. Uh, with the with the tissue based approach because it hasn't worked. Right, tissue based pain responds well to tissue based interventions. I mean, do well. Do you actually? I'm just curious. Do do you see complete reversals based upon just the psychology? I've had complete reversals personally. I see them. Mm -hmm. I see it all the time. Yes. Wow. For sure. So can you? Do you mind talking about that? Your experience a little bit. Yeah. Sure. So, um, gosh. I think first symptoms for me, I mean, this is, this is part of this, so I'll, I'll use it as an, uh, an example of how to reflect on this in a diagnostic sort of way. So uh, if these 
aversive experiences, pain, fatigue, hunger, uh, even symptomologies like insomnia or digestive or bladder issues or th things like that. Um, headaches and it would be another one for me. Um, you look at these in context of like, where was safety and danger when these symptoms began? Mm. So insomnia is something I've had uh, my whole life. Um, uh, not really anymore, actually, but uh, I, I certainly as a kid, I had a, tr a lot of trouble sleeping. Uh, so as I'm reflecting on my life, looking at like, well, what, you know, what is, what is mm -hmm. the story my body's been telling me? Um, mm, my I back started, I, have, I, I carry a lot of tension. I'm not a relaxed kind of guy. I have joked that my, my spirit animal is like a Jack Russell Terrier or something like that. Like, <laughs> it just, uh, there's an intensity that I carry uh, in me and that uh, has its own origins as well. Um, but uh, so my back started going out in, in maybe first, second, into first year of medical school. I uh, started developing some acid reflux type symptoms, heartburn symptoms in the second year, had palpitations, needed to wear a heart monitor for a while. Wow. Um, uh, eventually started getting tension headaches uh, that seemed to be triggered by alcohol and caffeine. Um, uh, sleep was continued to be an issue despite like increasing fatigue. Um, and then there were these various little injuries. I would, uh, I had ankle pain for like seven years after a sprain and mm. I had a really pretty bad thumb sprain, kind of a, a inner tubing accident, but boy, I, I had pain That's for a lot of things, six Matt. years and hip pain <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, shoulder, bilateral shoulder pain. And so I just tend to do structural tendon ligament based pain pretty well. And so it wasn't until I encountered this fellow, Dr. Howard Schubiner, um, that, well, first I started to see that this paradigm of all pain comes from the body and it's just related to tissue, uh, that there's more than that. Uh, he was really helpful for that. But then, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it was probably three years into uh, sort of practicing that and trying to uh, integrate that into my primary care practice that I realized that like, wait a minute, I have this chronic back pain that started after a massage that doesn't make any sense. And, uh, I've mm -hmm. had all these treatments. I think I had like uh, 12 rolfing treatments. And, uh, in addition to meditating and taking a meditation class and, uh, and, and really trying to work on my stress. And I think it, my stress did reduce, or I had different skills to work with it. Um, <laughs> but I hadn't, uh, also looked at the, um, the context of when this pain began. Um, and I don't think I, for a long time, I thought this massage therapist had, uh, screwed up my fascia or something like that. And, uh, but I, when I went back and said, well, what else was going on? If I just kind of put this in the context, the right context of my whole life. And, uh, at that time, well, that was right. I was a couple months into my first job at the, uh, center for integrative medicine, uh, is what it was called then before Memorial hospital took it over. And, um, that was right at the time when I found out that my, they were going to turn over the ownership to, to this hospital system. And I knew immediately, one, that I um, I was going to lose some autonomy uh, because of that. And eventually I, I did. I had to leave that place three years later. Um, but it just, it felt like I had not been trusted with that information. Uh, it was sort of like, here's what's happening to you now. Um, when I had thought that there was maybe a little bit more of interdependence or um uh, collaborative approach with the other docs there. And we collaborated fine in, in a medical practice, but, uh, from the standpoint of how things were going to go. And so I had a lot of, uh, fear, a lot of insecurity, and then I had a lot of anger. Uh, and I didn't realize that for, mm -hmm. I don't know, a year and a half, I just had pain, back pain. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't disabling. I mean, there were days where I, it was really hard for me to tie my shoes. I couldn't, I couldn't flex my spine forward because it was so tight and just kind of mm. sensitive. Um, I wasn't losing, you know, control of my bowels and bladder and I didn't have fevers and I, you know, I didn't have foot drop. These are all signs that maybe something structural is really going on. Okay. Um, uh, and I was able to look at that and say, well, I'll be damned. Like this is, uh, 
uh, I wonder if this is this a conditioned response. Um, and that, yeah, my, it, my back hurt. Massages felt better. Uh, and it, you know, I touched my back and it was tender. It went, my brain wasn't tender or I wasn't thinking of some repressed childhood trauma every time I tried to tie my shoes. <laughs> right. uh, it was just that my nervous system uh, uh, didn't prefer the disconnection that I was giving it. I mm. actually wasn't connected to myself. I was sort of driving on forward, yeah. perfectionist, high expectations, uh, just kind of get her done sort of thing. And I'm good at that. Yeah. You know, it served me very well in medical school and residency. But it wasn't until the, the context of all this other thing came in. I actually took some time and through some expressive writing and other uh, forms of kind of emotional awareness and uh, meaning creation out of this, uh, these feelings that that process of reconnection, it's like within a week or two, actually shoulder symptoms and low back symptoms were like dramatically reduced. Wow. It was like, oh, that's what this was. Okay. So uh, w- was there a light bulb moment or was it an unfolding through this reflection? Definitely an unfolding. Okay. There, and a light bulb moment. It wasn't okay. a light bulb moment and then uh, everything went away. But there was a point where you're like, ah, mm-hmm. okay, that's mm-hmm. it. Well, okay. and, it, and it got me right in the gut. It wasn't an intellectual yeah. Thing only. It, uh, yeah. we're, we're, we're far more easily moved to change than we are convinced. Um, and that's just uh, a, a product of like a Hallmark cards. Like you'll never remember <laughs> what somebody told you. You'll always remember how they made you feel. Like right. that's l- part it's- of our neurological like protective mechanism. We remember these like dangerous or safe situations when our needs were threatened or our needs were met by certain people or certain circumstances. Uh, and our nervous system starts to create these ways to protect us or ways to get more of that. Um, this is exactly what happens with, uh, in addictions. Uh, mm. this is what happens. Uh, maybe I was in middle school and my mom made uh, ravioli with ricotta cheese in it and I ate it and ricotta cheese is a little strange. We'll just be honest, but it's delicious. So I <laughs> it's can good get it to my Is it cheese really? Yeah, whatever it is. But, uh, about 10 minutes later, I got a, a GI distress, uh, coming up, you know, a lot of nausea and vomiting. Uh, and I attributed it to that. And so you probably never had ricotta cheese the rest about, of your life. For about 10 years, right? Okay. So that's a conditioned response. Yeah. My brain says like, absolutely not. Uh, I wouldn't eat it uh, in other things. And I think it took like, at some point, uh, a girl or, you know, somebody I was interested in made lasagna <laughs> and I was just like, okay, well, I'm just going to eat this. And I didn't have a response. And it was like, oh, well, maybe this is actually okay. You know, yeah. I had this gastrointestinal virus that a couple other kids had had at the same time, but mm-hmm. my brain said ricotta mm-hmm. cheese is horrible. Never do this again. And yeah. it sort of actually, like, I would have physical aversion to this thing. I would get a little nauseated when it was in other things. My brain was doing that to me to protect me. Interesting. From a perceived threat. Yes. I'm, you know, I'm curious, though. You say, you you know, with some of your pain, it, it wasn't wrapped up in uh, childhood trauma or whatever. But you know, do you often see emotional trauma that's, that is linked to, to, like, when maybe when you do some physical therapy, so emotions come out? Or I mean, do you, and they are really directly connected? Yeah. When I was doing more body work, I, we, people would have sometimes a, like an emotional release due to a somatic change. And, mm-hmm. um, that, that's really interesting stuff. But since I don't do quite as much of that anymore, like, yeah. absolutely. I, I see, uh, one of the most powerful priming events, uh, in our lives and for our nervous system in these conditioned responses is when, uh, those that are in charge of meeting our needs don't meet them. Um, 
And uh, this was actually really uh, well demonstrated in something called the still face experiment. Have you guys heard of that? Yes, from you. Okay, yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, Yeah. so that was a study. Oh, geez, maybe it was up in the Boston area. I don't know where it was. Anyway, uh, it's probably 30 years old now. Mm -hmm. Um, But they would have maybe one-year-old children uh, and uh, with good relationships with their parents. Oh, yeah, I have heard about this. Yeah, you can just go on YouTube and and search still face experiment. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. and essentially, they, they, you see an attuned relationship. Uh, mother and child uh, are meeting each other's needs, and there's some like mirroring of, uh, which is important for emotional health to to see that when I have pain, that someone else, you know, is reflecting back to me that they understand that pain, and uh, they they have this uh, engaged relationship, and then they have the mother like kind of turn turn around and then turn back, and is completely stoic, and no emotion at mm-hmm. all, no expression, no interaction, and it's like instantly the baby picks up on it. Uh, and starts to like try to get mom back. Um, and that it starts to use all of these physical and emotional like mechanisms. So this is what I call mm-hmm. our alarms, physical yeah. feelings and, and emotional feelings um, to try to get the mother to re-engage to like, Hey, are we okay? What's going on here? Where, where have you gone? And it's increasingly like the alarms get worse and worse. It's actually a little uncomfortable to watch. It's like a two minute video. So it's, mm-hmm. it's okay. And the mother comes back at the end and all as well. But like, uh, he's even narrating. He says, yeah, you'll even see the baby lose postural control. Well, what's that? Right. This is a, this is a manifestation of, of that massive tension and anxiety, the anxiety of disconnection that, uh, that is now manifesting through the physical body, uh, to try to get the mother back. And she comes back eventually. And that's, you know, that's fine. But, um, the ways that one that's been done to us, right. Uh, whether it's through the overt abuses that we've experienced, um, I, you know, I don't have any of the major horrible dark traumas in my life, but I had some bullying and teasing and just like a, I grew up a little bit anxious. I had some health conditions, um, uh, as a kid and, uh, you know, my parents were really good parents. I had asthma. And so that's, a uh, going to the hospital occasionally for that or asthma attacks. There was just sort of a hypervigilance about my own health. And, um, you know, my parents were great parents, well-meaning people, but they have their own ways of, of working with, uh, uh, feelings and, uh, I don't know, a certain hypervigilance about those or a disconnection from those in mm-hmm. certain ways as well. And so, uh, again, mm-hmm. not in my situation, uh, these traumatic things leading to my nervous system kind of being sensitized. However, uh, these personality traits, which come through experience, with which come through just kind of grasping after trying to get people to like me and be okay. And um, that is was a big part of, in some ways, my physical body and my brain, uh, having, I would, we call this term a neurosomatic relationship, nervous system and soma is body, neurosomatic mm-hmm. relationship. Um, and much of that is the autonomic nervous system. So, uh, my system became very sensitized, uh, basically because of all the stress that I hold inside myself, uh, and in so doing and not actually attending to the feelings beneath it, I disconnect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my nervous system kind of goes crazy. It doesn't like that. It doesn't like disconnection. And in the same way, the baby in the still face experiment starts to throw a fit and really go nuts to try to get mom come back. It's like, I, I do that to myself. Yeah. And we live in this time, um, w- where disconnection is almost the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I, there's a book called, um, lost connections, I believe. Um, there's a guy, a journalist from the UK. We'll have to find his name and throw him up on the the show notes, but he, he walks you through, um, 
so many ways that we disconnect as a society, certainly from each other, uh, certainly from ourselves, from nature, from meaningful work, you know, all mm-hmm. these me- needs that we have just because we're human that we downplay and we uh, deny. And so from that kind of chronic disconnection that's become the norm, it's manifesting in all these crazy ways mm-hmm. through mental health, through chronic pain, through um, you know, plowing through the stressors and these kind of red flags that our our body is sending us. And I just, you know, part of me feels really helpless by that sometimes as a practitioner, somebody who's trying so hard to help people. Um, so how do you cope with that? You know, especially as you, I imagine you have this revolving door of patients that you see that you're teaching who... Um, are the results of our culture. You know, you can do so much great work and then they they kind of go back out into these systems that are not conducive to health. Um, so I'm wondering how you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Gosh, I mean, even looking at your description there, you said you feel helpless, you know, as you work with people and uh, just within even your own experience. Um, that feeling of helplessness is trying to help Right, and so uh, yeah. we we sort of, if we can pause just long enough to sort of attend to what what's this, what is the significance of this, or what actually needs attention right now, and in feelings of helplessness, like mm-hmm. certainly maybe there's areas of uh, uh, justice, and, and, you know, it, social justice in, in a number of ways, or maybe maybe there's some other uh, kind of pattern that uh, through experience, through modeling, through uh, your own life, right, you've learned that like this this is the way to meet my needs. Uh, for mm. me, that often comes through like uh, when I feel insecure or feel, uh, I don't know, maybe powerless in some situation, even if it's a little bit, uh, I tend to, I'm doing it right now with you all. I tend to over speak. I tend to speak more loudly, more quickly. Um, I tend to go right <laughs> up into my head and completely disconnect from myself. I do that too. Yeah, yeah. I need to like, I need you to understand so that I can feel okay. Yeah. Rather than like, man, that part of me that just, where does it come from that I don't feel okay? Yeah, and I love how you've, I've heard you ask this before, Matt. You said, huh, I'm really, that's really curious. I'm really interested. That's interesting. Instead Mm of coming at yourself with the judgment lens, Mm -hmm. that I think the way that I hear you talk about it is out of, it's a curiosity lens. Like, why am I feeling that way? Why am I thinking that? Where's that coming from? And I think that's a huge gift to give to people uh, because we beat ourselves up so much. So to think about it is, that's interesting. Where's well, that's coming? Where's that, where that's coming from? I don't know. You said at the very beginning of this thing about mindset. You said something about you know, is it a mindset thing? Can we just shift mindset and then it will all, maybe the symptoms will go away? Mm. Um, maybe. And and what I mean by that is uh, Carol Dweck and she has a book called Mindset, and you probably both have yeah. heard of that. Great. Um, uh, and I don't have kids, and uh, if we have kids someday, like that will be a really interesting thing for me to kind of come back to because uh, I think that's one of the things that I was raised. Uh, with was more of this fixed mindset, mm-hmm. uh, right and wrong, uh, a focus on um, fear of failure. Yes, feel fear Good of failure. Or of of uh, a focus on just behaviors rather than uh, understanding mm-hmm. kind of thing. And uh, some of that came through some spiritual formation, and some of it came through just culture at large. And uh, certainly my peer and my peer orientations, uh, looking 
to peers to validate me kind of thing, which is crazy for, you know, grade school. Uh, when your models for, uh, I don't know, greatness are grade school boys. Um, <laughs> yeah, all, all but we time. all do that. We yeah. seek validation we from that. our peers. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. This growth mindset is one of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no such thing as, uh, I think you, you referenced, Tony Robbins has this quote. I, I think that, um, you know, there's no such thing as failures, there's only outcomes. Um, meaning that like it's all information uh-huh. for you to grow from. And what, is, what do you think that does to your fight or flight or freeze nervous system when everything, it just is what happens. Oh, I like and if that. you can receive it yeah. and say, okay, well, and I had this intention and that didn't turn out. Um, am I a mess? Am I uh, a failure? Am I worthless? Um, or any other kinds of things where we just sort of absorb tension uh, around this thing rather than saying, okay, well, th- this happened and now how can I respond to this with interest, with curiosity, sometimes with courage mm. and all the time, hopefully with compassion. I, I say those, you know, they have nice alliteration there, C- curiosity, courage, and compassion. Like mm. that's what this work takes yeah. Um, yeah. so much. And that creates an t- entirely different quality in your unconscious nervous system and in your physiology and in your cortisol levels and in your impulses and your ability to control them and all of these things. Like if, if we feel safer than we feel threatened and dangerous, we do better. And that's like requisite for health. Yeah. Wow. Speaking and okay. So you bring up Tony Robbins and there's, you know, while we have you here Mm -hmm. uh, as a, a medical professional, I'm curious about this because so, so Tony, it's kind of a trend. It's, it's gaining in popularity. This, 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 this ice bath thing. He's been wanting to ask shot. you about this. I, I'm, I'm just, it's a curiosity question. So, so Tony Robbins, you know, apparently it's, it's on YouTube. He takes a, he takes this ice plunge at, um, at 57 degrees twice a day. I've seen some others that, that say, Hey, you can just be in here for a few minutes, you know, when you wake up and then right before you go to sleep, cause it lowers your core body temperature. Don't go to the point where you're shivering are there real, if, you, if I'm going to torture myself like this and actually put myself through through the, these cold showers or whatever, is this worth it? Is it medically proven or is it one of those sort of, I wouldn't even say pseudoscience, but has it been researched enough for us to even know? Um, that's great. <laughs> I love this because I, I've done some work with that myself. Oh. Um, and so... I don't know if Tony Robbins gets it from this guy, Wim Hof, or yeah, it's sort of like a simultaneous yeah. uh, thing. I mean, cold exposure has been around for uh, a little while before Wim Hof, uh, the Iceman. He's this Dutch guy that, uh, you know, does all these crazy feats of, uh, not strength necessarily, feats of exposure, I guess. And, and I uh, think they've found that he has some genetic characteristic that can endure like lots and lots of pain, mm-hmm. which I know we, we don't all have. Yeah, but we can train. I mean, yeah, we don't have genes, and I'm not sure exactly what those genes are per se, but... Um, Scandinavian, Scandinavian, <laughs> cold genes. Um, but part of what he, he does is through this progressive uh, graded exposure to cold. You don't, you don't start with five minutes of an ice bath on the first time, and breath control. And so what are we working with in, in that? We're working with the autonomic nervous system. We're fostering this uh, relaxation and rest response uh, in the middle of this. There's actually certain things. We actually can uh, arrest certain uh, kinds of heart arrhythmias uh, by bathing somebody's face in an ice bath. It's kind of an old old time trick before we had uh, better IV medications and things. We would actually like put somebody's face in, in an ice bath and that would cause this uh, diving reflex, they called it, uh, essentially where uh, our autonomic nervous system puts us into this parasympathetic 
uh, relaxation response, like in a, in a very physiological way. Uh, this is all vagal nerve kinds of things. And I think there's something to the cold exposure. Um, I think there is from a training of the breath, training of attention is another big thing that they don't talk about just as directly there in the, in the podcast and interviews I've heard from with Wim Hof. But like, uh, there's this piece of like, if you're focusing on avoiding the pain or avoiding the discomfort of the cold, you're reinforcing to your nervous system. Like we're not okay. This isn't going to be right. Like I need to change. I need to get out of this rather than taking your attention somewhere else or working with just a focus on the breath. You're actually just choosing to let go of, of the fearful of avertive aversion response and doing something that regulates yourself. And so, so you're, you're building up capacity to uh, endure stress. So I think over time, like it actually, it actually does that. I mean, there's some people say it stimulates brown fat, which helps metabolism or uh, any number of mm. things. And, and maybe that's true too. Um, but I, I mean, for, for a simple life hack that <laughs> one triggers your uh, autonomics to, to be in this kind of more adaptive way. Wow. Um, I think it's fantastic. And two, uh, we haven't talked about placebo in this. Um, placebo medicine is sort of what I do. Like it's the expectation of benefit, right? Uh, it's the, it's moving from a state wow. of, of powerlessness to empowerment or somebody's this, this powerful pill is going to help me. That changes our physiology based upon belief. If you can, whatever you can do in life that makes you feel like this is mine, I've got this, I'm getting stronger. Like this is good for me, whether that's cold or that's core strength or Pilates, or that's uh, a vegan diet, or uh, that's avoiding gluten even, um, I think there's plenty of people out there and this will maybe be some controversy, but that are on the intolerant or not quite sure, or maybe I feel better. Or I felt better for a week after avoiding it, but then all those symptoms kind of came back. Um, there's a huge placebo component of that. I avoided gluten for like a couple months when I had back pain just to see. And, uh, I don't yeah. know, it felt kind of cool at first and maybe I felt benefit and then it didn't change because the cause wasn't gluten for my situation. But right. I tried it too. And I lost some weight when yep. I, my esophagus was tightening. It didn't do anything though with my esophagus. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so, and, it, and it's, it's, it's interesting when you talk about pain being like getting our attention for problems, there's also the no pain, no gain, I suppose. Like if you, the ice baths, that's pain, right? Sure, but we're, sure. we're saying that there is, health benefits to putting your body in pain. I think this is kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, this is ex somebody who's afraid of heights, uh, doesn't begin to overcome that by only staying inside on the couch, um, and thinking about it or reading books about it. That might be the first step, right? But eventually there has to be this experience, a mastery experience, or even, uh, in, in some neuroscience circles, we call these expectancy violations where, times where you would have expected in the, in the past to like, oh, I don't like standing up on ledges and looking at this, that, uh, that you've so trained yourself uh, and you're so willingly choosing to expose this that you don't have that panic response when you look over a ledge. We like, would call that psychology's desensitization. Exactly. Uh, so, well, yeah. And what was I saying earlier about a sensitized nervous system? Yeah, it's actually right. a, a phenomenon called central sensitization. And there's central sensitization syndromes, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, the pelvic floor disorders, TMJ, um, gosh, any number of these other multiple chemical and food sensitivities, uh, mm. irritable bowel and bladder syndromes. These things are called central sensitization, meaning our central nervous system is sensitized. The threshold for what causes discomfort, what causes a, an unpleasant alarm, pain, fatigue, whatever, has, has become lowered. And so it takes less to actually trigger this thing. Mm. And that's a well-studied phenomenon. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's what I work with all the time. Desensitization is a big piece of this. And the most powerful sensitizer there is for us is fear. 
Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> it I do. every system of the body. And it's so unconscious, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's where when we don't, we are not aware or conscious of the fears, then the body takes over, mm-hmm. you know, that's where, and the work that you're doing. The body keeps the score. I mean, that's yeah. a book on, the, on trauma and how does, what does that mean? Well, yeah, it means that unconscious physiological processes take over to protect us when we haven't been protected or we're choosing not to protect ourselves mm-hmm. um, in, in various ways. So, so we're going to ask you the same three questions okay. that we ask everybody else as we wrap up. The first one is what is a book that you are reading or you have read that impacted you that you might recommend for the big self community? Uh, maybe just something else like a documentary or a podcast that you've heard, something that you're learning right now that you want to pass on. Yeah, I think uh, something that I was exposed to last uh, year. Well, two things. I'm going to give you two. Sorry. Yeah, um, perfect. Uh, one is just, it's a book. It's a fantastic book on stress illness and how this works. It's a, a book by Gabor Mate um, called uh, When the Body Says No. Um, that book is fascinating. Uh, it's really comprehensive. It talks about the connections to stress with lots of downstream sort of adult chronic conditions, even things like autoimmunity and even cancers and how those are related to stress and trauma and even some of the epigenetic factors. So what happens in the uterus uh, when your mother is stressed, what happens to you? Um, So that's Mm -hmm. really interesting. The other one was, it's called nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg. Um, And that's not new, uh, but I was new to me recently. And um, it's really a paradigm and a language of needs. So emotions, physical sensations, physical feelings and emotional feelings come from the perception that needs are being met, you know, and, or will be met or needs are being unmet or are being threatened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if we can connect, it's, it's a process of reconnection. Yeah. Um, and it both communicating to yourself, uh, this and communicating to others, like it's, that's a, that was a game changer for me. Yeah. I love that. So I think reconnecting with our vocabularies for this episode, we've had a lot of hundred dollar words <laughs> yeah, sure. used on this. This has been fantastic. Really fun. Well, uh, our second question wrapping up, what's your morning routine look like, Matt? Yeah, boy. So in, uh, last summer I, I, uh, came across this concept of the miracle morning, Hal Elrod and whatever. And so, yeah, you just sort of take these times to do some writing and do some, uh, little exercise and some meditation and, um, affirmations and these sorts of things. I was doing it more rigorously in the summer. Uh, and that has sort of waned a bit, but, uh, I, I try to wake up, oh gosh, by five fifteen, five thirty, and wow. Um, have some coffee and do a little meditation and uh, read a little something. And sometimes I write, uh, depending, like it's some days I don't read and I, I do some kind of reflective writing and journaling and that kind of thing. And um, How much time yeah, does that take? Uh, about an hour. So okay. It's, it's, it's been worth it for me. And, I, you know, to be able to condition myself to, to wake up early has been good. That was a hard thing for me for years. And you sort of condition the system. You know, the earlier you get up, the tired you are at night. And mm-hmm. so you kind of end up sleeping better. And um, I, I always like, poo-pooed, you know, people who wake up early. Uh, I don't know. And now I don't. So uh, it's been it's been helpful for me. And so just having some time, if nothing else, I have the belief that I'm doing something good and powerful for myself, <laughs> which First I'm like thing. making my yeah. own placebo, Yeah. right? Like, yeah, no, and I've got this and I'm convincing myself and I've got some affirmations that I've spent time on and um, some things that even working in growth mindset and nonviolent communication and these sorts of things where uh, it, it helps me. So, yeah. Right. Okay, last question. Mm. What does big self mean to you? Um, big self to me, that's great. Big self uh, means unburdened self. Ooh, um, 
And so wow, I like that. we sort of crush ourselves with our own expectations and uh, our own uh, lack of boundaries and uh, any number of things uh, and the ways that we, um, I don't know, maybe from an inside out sort of pressurize ourselves by our disconnection from our feelings. Um, mm. These sorts of things just tend to constrict us and we become smaller and smaller and more robotic or more habituated uh, and mm-hmm. unaware. And so unconscious. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's going to go down in the. Yeah. It's fascinating to hear books. E- 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 all, all of our, um, our podcast guests and the different ways that they define what big self means to them. I think it kind of evolves the very concept itself. It's been so great to have you on yeah. Matt McClanahan. How do uh, people, uh, how can they learn more? How can they reach out to you and find you? Yeah. So my website's probably the best way. Uh, the center for insight medicine is my clinic and the website is center for insight just all written out. And so you can find that. And, uh, I've got some links to articles and some other things I've done and just uh, what, what is the, this practice of insight medicine? What's insight medicine, and, uh, links to my calendar and lectures that I'm giving and that kind of Awesome. Everybody check him out. You will you will not be disappointed. Thank you. Yeah, you're for very being welcome. Here. Sure. Appreciate Love it. having so you much. in the house. Thanks for taking some time out you're of your, your schedule. You're very welcome. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, join the community on Facebook at the Big Self Society. You can find us at big underscore self on Twitter. And we are also at the Big Self Society on Medium, where we feature and curate content on topics ranging from psychology to creativity and productivity. We'd love to hear from you. What show made an impact on your thinking, your habits, your decision-making, or anything else? And anyone you'd like us to reach out to and have on the show, let us know.